Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Friday morning to you. Where in the word are you today? Always my lead-off question for each and every one of us. Um, uh, so a few a few brief little um, announcements here this morning, uh, reminders, and then a comment or commentary on the upcoming trial that will be taking place of former police officer Derek Chauvin uh, for his part in the death of George Floyd. So um, first of all, if you know any National Guard members who are currently deployed in Washington, D.C., they're all getting free admission to the Museum of the Bible. And so let me just say, if you if you know anybody, go ahead and reach out to them. Let them know that the Museum of the Bible is just really extraordinary. They'll enjoy great hospitality from our friends there. So uh, just thought I would highlight that. And then also on Sunday evening at 7 p.m. Central, 7 p.m. Central, uh, I am going to be hosting a live stream event on all of Faith Radio's um, streaming platforms. Now, that means that we will be doing this on Facebook Live and we will be doing this on YouTube, which means that you need to uh, like or subscribe or follow Faith Radio on one of those platforms, either Facebook or YouTube, so that you can more easily connect with us during the live stream event on Sunday evening. I mean, you know, radio doesn't actually have a video component, so we need to do this on a platform that has a video component. You can go to myfaithradio.com backslash live stream event, or you can just text the word event to 877-933-2484 and get all the info that you need. Uh, we're, we are doing a called to kindness live stream event, part of our Kindness Always initiative. And Nicole Phillips, who really is like sort of the kindness queen, uh, will be joining me for the conversation. All right. Many of our listeners have a rising level of anxiety about the upcoming trial of Derek Chauvin uh, for the part that he played in uh, the death of George Floyd. He is on trial for murder. Uh, the trial begins Monday, and we should all be praying for the truth to be told, for justice to prevail, and God willing, the possibility of peace based on people seeing one another as mutual image bearers of the living God, worthy of mutual respect. I mean, that's my hope. I'm holding out that level of hope. Um, The social order is best established and kept when there is real justice. And so that's what we need to be praying for. And, um, And we need to recognize that not everyone will accept the outcome of the trial. Like, I recognize that. But the trial is not going to begin and end on Monday. It's going to begin on Monday. And so let's be mindful of that. And so uh, there's several things happening over the weekend and on Monday, uh, of which I want to make you aware. If you are not already engaged with wearegospel.world, wearegospel.world, that's where you will find the resources for collecting together with other people of, uh, of prayerful concern about this. George Floyd's family has called for a global day of prayer for justice on March the 8th, and there will be events at what has become known as George Floyd Square, 
um, from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. Much of that will be live streamed um, around the world. So there's going to be ongoing events there. There are also people who are, um, you know, preparing for things to not be peaceable. And so uh, Calvary Lutheran Church is going to be hosting a, a medical team called 612 MASH in preparation to uh, tend to those who might be might find themselves wounded in, you know, things that do not remain peaceable. So we're praying for peace and we're preparing for, um, you know, not, not, not just protest, but for, you know, some level of negative interaction between people. So let's just be the people on the side of peace and on the side of helping in the midst of all of this. All right. Uh, first up this morning, education in America. What have we learned about our kids, ourselves, technology, hybrid, homeschool, on and on and on? And how is all of that already changing the future of education in America? Jonathan Butcher from the Heritage Foundation joins me next. Today, Jonathan Butcher, he works with the Heritage Foundation. His area of expertise is education. We're thrilled to have him joining uh, us today to talk about how education has changed over the course of the last year in America and what changes we might work for uh, in the days ahead. Jonathan, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Great to be with you. Yeah, it's um, it's fantastic to be able to till this conversational soil with somebody who really knows this area. So could you um, make some observations about the shifts that have taken place, um, particularly uh, in the way that American parents think about and are then practicing, you know, getting their kids educated, uh, you know, since COVID? Well, sure. And that's been on the minds of parents across the country, right? Because every public school was closed and every private school was effectively closed la- you know, a year ago, right? Last March. So what's happened since, I think, are a couple of things. First is that we're finding, especially in the younger grades, so kindergarten, first and second grade, that there are significant enrollment shifts. I think a lot of public school districts are reporting that they have fewer students enrolled uh, in those younger grades. And so I think families are deciding that it's not uh, what, you know, the, the vision that they have for their young child's experience is not in front of a computer, right, for the early part of the school year, uh, as was the case in, in many districts across the country, especially in some of the larger cities. I think secondly, we found with private schools that there's some concentrated areas where private schools, especially Catholic schools, uh, were struggling before the pandemic, and the pandemic may have kind of pushed them over the edge a little bit, and they were forced to close. Now, having said that, overall, I think that private schools are reporting waiting lists. Um, Some 90% of Catholic schools were open for in-person learning from the beginning of this school year, which is a stark contrast with what was going on in in traditional schools. So I I think that what private schools have demonstrated really for everyone is that schools can be open to in-person learning right now and not be super spreaders, right? Not, Not be the center of outbreaks in their communities. So I think, you know, I think those are two big things. You know, homeschooling is another one. I mean, I think that the surveys 
last summer especially, were showing that parents were more interested in homeschooling than they had been before the pandemic. Um, and I think the numbers are bearing that out. I think homeschool associations around the country are talking about huge increases in either inquiries about learning more about homeschooling or registering to participate. So those are um, some of the ways that people have been answering the question, like, what am I going to do? Because as a person who had one child in a public school for um, needs related to his special needs and then another child in a private school, um, and then everybody's at home, like I already work from home and then everybody else came home. And how are we going to not only manage that, we live in a place that does not have um, robust Wi-Fi. Um, how could both of them be on online at the same time um, doing video-based in-person learning? Uh, just we didn't, we didn't have the network capacity to even handle that. Um, we have one child who can't manage himself well enough to be in a particular place at a particular time doing something over an extended period of time without someone right there, without personal oversight. Like, how are you going to manage that? So I, I just recognize the stress that families have experienced because we've experienced it in our own home. Both of them, thank, thankfully, went back to actual in-person learning. One, because the private school reopened fairly quickly. Um, and because my other child has special needs, that was the first group to get to go back to school in my community. Um, everybody has unique challenges. Everybody's answering these questions in different ways. I have heard a lot about learning pods. Some parents have developed these. I, I think that our listeners would be very interested to know more about learning pods. And then you're telling us that there are some school districts that are adopting that idea. I'd love to know more about that. Well, sure. So with a learning pod, families have partnered with people in their neighborhood or the other parents in their school uh, school system and decided to educate their children in a home as a group. And so it's sort of, you know, it's not quite homeschooling because it's more than one child. I mean, I think many homeschool families may be familiar with the idea of a homeschool co-op, and that's kind of what this sounds like. Now, sometimes these families have decided to use the district's online learning platform but in other cases, they have not. In other cases, they have uh, chosen, you know, they've hired a teacher in some cases who's uh, ready to leave uh, the traditional teaching system and, and just teach in a pod setting. Uh, sometimes that their families have picked another, you know, virtual curriculum provider. One estimate has put that it could be as many as 3 million children moved to learning pods between uh, March of last year and, uh, and today. So th this was a big a big shift, right? I mean, many parents said that they're not going to wait for districts to decide what the right answer is. They're, they're going to go ahead and solve this problem for themselves because it simply wasn't happening fast enough. Uh, so I, I think pods are just a they're a great civil society answer to what we faced in the pandemic after, you know, having a, a system for so long that I think families relied on to deliver services in the K-12, you know, in the K-12 sector. And I think families decided that they could, you know, they were willing to try to do it, to, to try to do it on their own. So it reminds me a little bit um, of the one, one room schoolhouse. I mean, part, I think, of what has happened, Jonathan, over the course of the last year is that we have been reminded that the way education is delivered through public systems in the United States of America is, in fact, not necessarily the right way to do it. And it's certainly not the only way it's ever been done, even here in the United States. So I think that um, 
this has given people the freedom to stop and ask the question, is this the way I want to have my child educated? Are there other options? Hmm, there are other options. Might one of those be better for the vision that I have for my kid? Um, So when we come back, let's take a very brief break. When we come back, I'd love for you to talk with us about um, uh, the imperative that you are acknowledging. Like this is the language you're using, and I really like it. Um, that school choice is an imperative for every child. So we're going to talk with Jonathan Butcher from the Heritage Foundation about this in just a moment. You can find everything we're talking about today at heritage.org. All right, picking up where we left off with Jonathan Butcher from the Heritage Foundation again direct you to heritage.org backslash education for really great articles and resources about this topic. Um, Jonathan, talk with us about school choice and how you see it as really a a national imperative. Well, especially right now. I mean, I think one of the things that really opened my eyes was when I talked to a parent in North Carolina who has a child with special needs, and they were using that state's education savings account program. Now, there are five states in the U.S. that have such a uh, such a program, and and with an account, the state deposits a portion of a child's uh, uh, piece of the education funding formula in a private account that families use for education products and services. So in the case of this family that I uh, I talked to, the Bradfords in North Carolina, you know, they explained that they use part of the tuition for an education therapist for Libby, who was the daughter. Um, they use some of it for private school tuition. They use some of it for um, different services and, and even some, some hardware-related um, uh, services that go with a computer and allow Libby to manipulate, you know, different devices so that she can um, uh, be in a, in a traditional classroom. And so uh, when the when the pandemic set in, they were able to use this flexible spending account and continue all nearly all of the services that Libby was receiving before the pandemic set in. Now Libby is confined to a wheelchair. Um, and she, you know, has, has very little movement, even in, um, uh, even in her hands, she's, she's able to control these devices that I just described to you, uh, with, uh, with eye movements. So, you know, we're not talking about, you know, a, a simple thing here, right? This is a very sophisticated set of, um, special needs that the Bradfords were trying to resolve and to hear the Bradfords talk about how this account allowed them to continue many of the same services for Libby was just so encouraging. I mean, I think that's exactly what, these uh, private learning options are meant to do. And it should be available to every child, right? Um, In Arizona, which is another state that has these accounts, they're available to children assigned to failing schools, students living on tribal lands, um, adopted children, children in military families. So, you know, it's children with special needs can can be helped by this with, without a doubt. But it's it's also something that sh- that can and should be made available to children from all walks of life. Which I think leads us to the question, why wouldn't we do this? What are the barriers to this kind of um, reform? I mean, I'm going to use that word. And then I'd love to talk with you about what other reforms we might work toward. Well, sure. To the first question, I mean, I think the biggest obstacle are teacher unions. They're well-funded opposition that have spent 
you know, decades, generations almost, um, trying to um, uh, keep parents with their children in assigned schools. I mean, there's no other way to describe it. I mean, they have capped charter school growth in places like Chicago and Los Angeles. They have sued to shut down private school scholarships in Arizona, uh, as well as Florida. I mean, so this, you know, they have uh, significant resources. They, you know, at the moment, uh, have a uh, a very very open relationship with you know the the uh, the White House and the administration they they've already had a, a photo op you know the heads of the NEA and the AFT the two largest teacher unions in the U S so th so that's that's a big one um, I think that um, you know fortunately for for families and fortunately I think for for students is that there are more than there is more than one uh, option right education savings accounts are just one uh, charter schools are another. These these schools are public schools of of choice that enroll um, students uh, as many students su subject to space as they can. Uh, it's not based on where they live. It's not based on their neighborhood. Um, and these charter schools, um, as a percent, serve more children from low income families and uh, from minority families than traditional schools do. So these you know these schools are really helping uh, those students who oftentimes have been assigned to family schools for many years. Okay, that statistic um, was really, really significant and might have snuck by. Charter schools, which are public schools of choice, um, serve more children. Tell us that statistic again, because that's going to be a little surprising to people. Sure. As, as a percent, right? So the percent of students that, that are enrolled in charter schools who are either minority or from low-income homes, that uh, that percent is higher than in traditional schools. And, you know, when you look at where most charter schools are located, right, where the, the, the they're concentrated, it's in large metro areas, right? I've named some of them already, you know, Chicago, mm -hmm. L.A., um, as well as places, uh, Washington D.C. Uh, has a significant number there. In fact, in in D.C., I think at um, that last check, I think it was more than half of the students, public school students in D.C., were attending charter schools. Uh, New Orleans, of course, converted nearly all of its public schools to charter schools after Hurricane Katrina. Um, so that was, you know, it was a big shift. So. You know, we're, we're talking about a, a, a kind of system, a, a kind of uh, option here where these charter schools can hire and fire teachers based on, you know, based on performance, based on the fit with the school. They can choose their curriculum. Um, they can make, you know, lots of decisions that allow them to be versatile and nimble that traditional schools often cannot. Okay, now let me ask this question then, because there's people listening who are going to say, why wouldn't we all be doing that? Um, could churches... Howls could provide space for charter schools. Is there a barrier to that? Um, and has anybody like tried that in any sort of large scale way? So not in a large scale way. I think uh, churches have offered their their facilities for charters to use. Now, since they're public schools, you know, they're you, you have to be very, you know, cognizant of uh, of what's uh, that the curriculum right doesn't put the school in a compromising you know position where suddenly you know they're they're not doing right what uh, uh, what what the public system I think is is appropriate you know uh, under the under the law for teaching religious content. Um, however, 
you know, churches and religious communities have been partners with the with charter schools and with the creation of these new schools. Uh, often, you know, pastors and um, and church leaders are are integral in 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 creating these schools and forming these new places. So, um, it, it, that's been a big part of it. And with with pods as well, I think churches have also um, uh, been a place where pods have been been able to meet. Uh, they've served as uh, as a great location uh, for families to um, uh, to use. So that's been a, a great way, I think, for families to express their values and see their values uh, matter, right, to them and uh, and reflected. And and I think that's that's so important for communities today, right? I mean, I think families that are um, discouraged about how public schools don't reflect what they believe or what their their values as a family um, are anymore. I think that. These pods, uh, as well as you know what we were describing before about the relationship between charter schools and of charter school formation and churches, it allows families to see their values reflected in what their children are learning. So that's a that's a very um, it's a great cultural right a, a great cultural uh, component. Absolutely. All right. It feels to me, Jonathan, um, like time is ripe for kind of wholesale reform on the education front. But maybe I am just, you know, uh, rose-colored glasses optimistic about um, about what it feels like in terms of this cultural moment. Um, so in addition to what you guys are doing at the Heritage Foundation, which we want to direct people again, heritage.org backslash education, um, are there others that you're aware of who are thinking like you're thinking and pressing in the same direction? Oh, certainly. There are groups around the country working in their states to, uh, to to move the kinds of proposals that we've talked about here. In West Virginia, there's a group called the Cardinal Institute that's worked for many, many years to promote uh, both public and private school choice, charter schools and, and education savings accounts there. Uh, the Goldwater Institute is headquartered in Arizona, but works there and around the country on these, uh, on these learning options. The first education savings account uh, option in the country was was created in in Arizona in part due to the Goldwater Institute and their partners like the Institute for Justice and a group called Ed Choice, which is another national school choice group. Um, so there there are many groups like this um, in, in states. In Tennessee, there's the Beacon Center. Uh, South Carolina has uh, the Palmetto Promise Institute. And so, you know, each of these organizations um, uh, has a focus on, on their state and, uh, and, and they all, the ones that I've listed here and others, have really been focused on this, on this topic of, of creating more, more options for parents. Okay, that is so exciting. Thank you so much. Um, I hope this is just the first of many conversations that we could have on this topic. Well, thank Which you. Which is to say, I hope you enjoyed yourself well enough that you'll agree to come back. I would be glad to. Thank you. <laughs> Fantastic. That's Jonathan Butcher. You can find him at the Heritage Foundation. That's heritage.org. We'll be right back. Most of us have the luxury of walking away from tough situations or people who tick us off. We can quit a job or bail on a relationship. But teens under our care don't have the same freedom. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. For the most part, teens are a captive audience, at least when it comes to attending school and living under our roof. When they get frustrated or angry, they're forced to live with the person who's caused the disruption. For many teens, that means that they'll choose to fight, lash out, and when backed into a corner, they'll attempt to inflict pain to their offender. 
So the next time your team gets hot, try to give them grace. Don't get sidetracked by their outburst. Help them work through the pain. There's more from Mark Gregston on Parenting Today's Teens website. Get helpful tips for moms and dads when you visit ParentingTodaysTeens.org. Dan DeWitt from Cedarville University. Uh, we are going to talk about the Weekend Worldview Reader and everything in it, posted right now at theolatte.com. Dan, welcome back. Thanks, Carmen. Good morning. Great. Good morning. Give us an overview of what's in this week's Weekend Worldview Reader. Well, I have some links to some talks that I've given, and so my blog post this week kind of all connect to a talk I gave yesterday at Cedarville on five reasons I believe the Bible. So I've got a link to the slides that I used in my presentation and a link to the video and then some articles I've written that are really based on material I gathered for that presentation. Um, and then in terms of articles, I have several just thinking about how do we how do we understand America's founding? Are we a Christian nation? Have we ever been a Christian nation? Are we in danger of not being a Christian nation? So I have a few articles about how to think about that. Really interesting link to an article by two philosophers in England who are um, analyzing Disney's Pixar movie, Soul. And I've got a link to a book um, by Jasmine Holmes, Carved in Ebony, Lessons from the Black Women Who Shape Us. And finally, I've got a video on textual criticism, because, you know, who doesn't want to talk about that on a Friday? How do we understand um, the manuscripts that make up our New Testament? So there's your overview. And that guy's just fun to look at. Okay, so there you go. Um, that is all in this week's Weekend Worldview Reader at Theolatte.com. Let's, um, let's jump in. Let's jump in with three witnesses of Rembrandt's painting. Yeah, so I've got—this is the painting by Rembrandt of—it's um, Aristotle, the philosopher, leaning on the bust of Homer. It's the most celebrated painting at the Met in New York City. And um, I have a replica of it hanging above my writing desk at home. I love I love this painting for all kinds of reasons. Um, one of which is you have Aristotle, this man of logic and rhetoric, and he looks tired and he's finding inspiration um, from the statue of this poet. And I love that kind of balance between philosophy and um, and artistic beauty. And so what I talk about in in this piece is that even though it looks like there's only two people represented in this painting, there's actually three. And so you have Aristotle, who was a student of Plato. Plato was a student of Socrates. And like his mentors before him, Aristotle had a famous student of his own who's actually depicted in this painting. Aristotle's famous student was Alexander the Great. And so the gold sash hanging around Aristotle's shoulder, if you were to look at the painting, um, has a little locket on it. And if you were to find a high-res image where you could zoom in, on the locket is a picture, or a portrait rather, of um, Alexander the Great. So I talk about these three people depicted in the painting. Alexander the Great, after he died with all of his great military conquests, there were surely histories written about him, but they're all lost. And so all that we have in terms of records of Alexander the Great come from um, histories that were written about four centuries after the events they're describing. When it comes to Aristotle, who, whose teachings are considered foundational in philosophy departments around the world, the earliest copy we have of Aristotle's original writings 
are from 1,200 years after Aristotle died. And then when it comes to Homer, Homer, whose epic poetry you know everyone's heard of, the Odyssey, the Iliad, um, his work has more evidence, literary evidence for it, than anything else from all of antiquity, with the exception of the New Testament. And so when it comes to Homer's work, we probably have about a thousand ancient copies. Um, our earliest one is from about 500 years after Homer would have composed it. When it comes to the New Testament, we have fragments that date back to within the first 100 years, plus thousands of copies in Greek, um, not to mention all of the various languages that the New Testament was translated into at a very early date. Yeah, and so here we're, tr- we're talking about the trustworthiness of um, of the Bible, which we're mm-hmm. laying a foundation for why you can trust what the Bible says. Um, let's pivot next to Bible translation. Um, you've got another piece posted, thanks be to God. Um, this is related to uh, early church martyrs and Bible translation. What's this one about um, on this week's Weekend Worldview Reader? Yeah, so I, I've given this talk, Five Reasons I Believe the Bible, in different settings before, and each time I just try and do more research, so it becomes an excuse to um, explore in an area that I have colleagues who've spent a lot of time who are really scholars in, in terms of the biblical manuscript tradition and the formation of the canon of the New Testament. And so, but for me, I just, if I get a chance, I'm going to go there. And so I spent a lot of time reading um, a book by Bruce Metzger from Princeton University, one of the foremost scholars in biblical manuscripts. And it's a book Who he published I love. with. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, such one a well. Yeah. Ab- absolutely. So, um, And so he published a book in the 70s with Oxford University Press, and it's on the early translation of the New Testament. And what I tried to do in my talk, and then in this article I do a bit of it, is to say, you know, it took us 500 years before we have an existing copy of Homer's works. So there's this five-century gap. So I call it the Homer gap. (laughs) And I asked the question, what if we laid that 500-year gap over the New Testament? What evidence do we have for the New Testament going on in that time frame in its first 500 years? And it's remarkable. So this one particular article is based on um, Metzger's book, and um, he talks about how in um, in A.D. 180, um, so within less than 100 years of the formation, the the final book of the New Testament being written. Most scholars think that John wrote his gospel late in the first century, wrote Revelation, maybe around 95, 97. And so we have the New Testament really concluding in terms of it being written, the last book being written at the end of the first century. Well, within about 90 years, we have evidence of Christians, six Christians in Northern Africa, where they spoke Latin, Our evidence of this event is in Latin from the transcripts, what was recorded from the court trial, and these six Christians were on trial for their Christian faith. And at one point in the transcript, they're asked, one of them's holding a case, and they're asked, what is in the case? And what was in the case were Paul's epistles, and Bruce Metzger makes the argument that they would have most likely been in Latin. And Metzger even says, you know, if they had Paul's epistles in Latin, it's highly likely they had the Gospels in Latin. And so what we have within less than a century of the last book of the New Testament being written is it's already translated into Latin. When they were told that they were going to be um, killed, executed for their Christian faith, they were decapitated. Their response was, thanks be to God. 
the power of witness and testimony um, is really significant. I think that um, could you and I take just one minute, 30 seconds to pray for my friend Mark, who in 10 minutes Mm. for the first time in his life is giving his testimony and he's doing it in front of industry colleagues. So I imagine that right now he's feeling a little intimidated and maybe a little bit scared. Um, Dan, would you pray for Mark, who's giving his testimony 10 minutes from right now? Wow, absolutely. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you right now knowing that you know all things and that you are glorified when we talk about you. We feel so um, often like we don't have the words, and we always— after we have the opportunity to share, are amazed at, even though we may stumble and stutter through what we have to say, how your Spirit will use us. And I pray that you do that with Mark. And far beyond what he might even imagine in this moment, that you would use it in a great way. And so I pray that you give him peace right now. I pray that you would remind him and fill his heart and his mind with the fact that you are with him and that the gospel— This life-changing message is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And I pray that his testimony might encourage someone towards faith this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Dan DeWitt and I will be right back. All right, I'm talking with Dan DeWitt. We are talking about the Weekend Worldview Reader, which you can find at theolatte.com. As you scroll down through the articles, you're going to find one entitled How Your Wish List is Pointing to God. Uh, And so I thought, well, we better talk about that. I'm going to a birthday party tomorrow. A person is probably going to look at those candles, close her eyes, and make a wish. Talk with us about how making wishes and the wishes we wish point to God? Well, this is one of those arguments for God's existence that isn't based on the kind of things we just talked about in terms of things outside of us, in terms, you know, historical evidences for the Christian faith or the reliability of the New Testament. This is one of those things that's inside of us. And the the interesting thing about that is that those are the kind of things that are, are even more difficult to deny because we can't stop being human. And so we believe as Christians, looking through the lens of the Bible, that we're made in God's image, we're living in God's good creation that's affected because of sin, Um, he's written his moral law on our hearts, Romans chapter 2, we're recipients of common grace, so, you know, we're, we're experiencing God's goodness in different ways, not his saving grace if we're not Christians, Um, and then also that we have this basic intrinsic desire to know God and and believe that indeed God does exist. So this argument is basically saying, think about how everything you wish for or long for or desire has some real counterpart. So you desire sleep. There's such a thing as rest. We None of us get enough of it, um, especially for you and you know, Paul getting up really early to prepare for this program. Um, <laughs> but there is a real thing. There's a real object. And so the same is true for food, the same is true for physical intimacy, and the same is true for God. There's a universal longing to connect with something beyond the material universe. This is not isolated to a small people group, you know, in Tennessee or in Wisconsin or, you know, it's not some, you know, it's not a Southern thing. It's not an American thing. It's universal. Is there a real object to this desire? In this, arg- in this article, I argue that, yes, all of our desires point to something real. 
as does our longing to know God. This, um, the depth of this longing um, exists in every person. And I do think, Dan, this is one of those places of opportunity where we can engage um, people of no faith or people who are placing their faith in, um, in hopes and dreams and aspirations and ideas other than God. Um, these do give us points of contact when when these things occur, when you are at a birthday party and somebody closes their eyes and makes a wish. If that person is somebody you know to, you know, be genuinely secular, at least in their testimony, it gives you an opportunity to follow up later, not at their birthday party, and say, mm-hmm. you know, when you closed your eyes, to whom were you making that wish? And mm-hmm. if they say something like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm sending it out there into the universe. Well, the, if the universe is impersonal, it can't respond. The only way there can be a response is if the universe is personal. And the only way the universe is personal is if God is God. That's absolutely is that, right. Is that fair? Yeah, that is totally fair. And that's, you know, this is one of those things where it's it's kind of one of those arguments. And I tell my students often, you know, there's no silver bullet in terms of trying to get someone to, to just go, oh, that all makes sense, with the exception of the power of the gospel through the through the right. spirit, right? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. So, only, only the but, spirit's going to do that. But I do need yes. to be the person who opens my mouth every once in a while. Amen, amen. And that's absolutely right. Our desires are pointing somewhere, and they're not just pointing somewhere; they're pointing to someone. And He's a good God who wants to satisfy that desire. He's made a way to where that desire and that longing to know some meaning and purpose can be satisfied in a person. Yeah, if you know His name, Jesus. Um, then, then today, you know, take those opportunities to speak his name in those environments where people know him not. I mean, that is, I mean, if Dan DeWitt and I uh, share a heart of passion for something, it's probably that, that the people of God would speak the name of Jesus in, in right and righteous ways um, in the context of people who know him not. Uh, and so the Weekend Worldview Reader is designed to, you know, help you stimulate your thinking and then provoke conversations with others, next generation people, um, up or down the ladder. Like, right, I have found good resources in the Weekend Worldview Reader for conversations um, with my parents who are, you know, of an age. Um, and and likewise, I'm totally using um, the, the Rembrandt's Three Witnesses uh, in a conversation with my kids because they're going to love that. Like that is, there's like, there's so many layers there, literally, and there's a little bit of... Um, like detective work to be done. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going to tell them that it's Alexander the Great. I'm going to ask them who's, you know, like I'm going to make them figure it out. Like whose picture's on there? Like uh, we're going to talk about the third picture in this picture. Like who else is represented? And they're going to be like, oh, I don't know. We're also going to talk about in, in view of that particular painting. When I saw it for the first time, Dan, and now I view it a little bit differently having read um, your reflections on it. You know, it almost, there's almost this, um, uh, blessing. It almost, hmm. you know, there almost looks like there's a blessing taking place, like, like, bless you, like, bless you, my friend, or bless you. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a, and I know, you know, it's more like a exhausted appreciation, but maybe there's something in there um, as well in terms of blessing those who have gone before us for the things they have very, um, in a very godly way, passed along to us. Absolutely. A sense of gratitude. And, and mm-hmm. we could all certainly have that for the influences in, in our lives. And, you know, for me, that painting is is a source of inspiration. And then on a deeper level, to say, look at this interesting way that it actually illustrates, we could trust the New Testament. 
if we believe what we have passed down through history about these three people, we have so much more evidence for the person of Jesus. And our human, our longings, like we talked about, are pointing us to a person who could bring us forgiveness and who could bring us purpose. So, yeah, I love what when, when art and literature and the Christian faith can all converge in a powerful way. That's kind of my happy place. And add coffee to that. And man, it's a good Friday morning. <laughs> <laughs> and thus, Theo Latte. So you guys need Amen. to check out uh, the website, theolatte.com. We are looking at things that are a part of the Weekend Worldview Reader, which is just this wonderful aggregated list that you can go to. And the, the section of articles this week, um, very, very provocative and thought-provoking in terms of helping us think through what is happening in our nation. So uh, that's in there this week as well. Dan DeWitt, as always, thank you so much. Thanks, Carmen. We'll be right back. All right, literally right now, like right now in real time on some industry breakfast that is happening uh, hybrid, virtual, and live, listener Jessica's husband is for the very first time in his life giving his testimony. Uh, So we are going to just celebrate that, and we're going to all pray for Mark um, as God uses him to sow sow the hope of the gospel into the lives of other people. Like, how great is that? Um, What opportunities might God be setting before you today? How might he have been preparing you over the course of your entire life for some conversation that might be had later today. You know, here's the reality. People are listening in or watching uh, in on this industry breakfast, and they're all over uh, the country and maybe even around the world, which means they might be right there next door to you or in the next room or certainly in your neighborhood. And so you might be the follow-up person. Like the divine appointment that God has set for you today might be a follow-up to the divine appointment that God's having right now in this, you know, industry breakfast where this listener's husband is giving his testimony because that's the way God works. That's the way God is working out his will right now in the context of human history. It should give you goosebumps. Like right now, God's doing his thing through the heart and the voice and the testimony of a man whom he has reclaimed and redeemed in Christ Jesus. What a glory. Like what a glory. And that as that is being shared, God is cutting the hearts of others, and they're going to need other Christians in their communities to follow up with them later today, tomorrow, next week. And that's you and me. Like, how cool is that? All right, that's the way we are the body of Christ in the world today. Each one uniquely members of it, variously gifted, uh, and God has set before us already the good works he intends for us to do and poured out every spiritual resource into our lives to accomplish his will. So cool. All right, we got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. So much to cover. The goal is to bring the mind of Christ to bear on the headline news of the day. So I want you to think about uh, what's in the headlines today. What are you reading? What are you seeing? What are you hearing? And how um, does, you know, because you know the Word of God, because you've been in the Word of God, We're sort of the hook for you as a Christian to walk into those conversations that are already taking place today and to be like, hey, I have a a view on that that might be a little bit different than what's just being talked about um, out there in the world. You know, the story, there is a story of a golden calf. Um, Let me me tell you about it. 
Now, you're going to tell them the story of Exodus 32. You're not going to read them the chapter because, you know, frankly, it's scary as hell. Um, But you're going to tell them that story and help them and help then uh, enter into a conversation about idolatry, which is the reality of every human heart. Or maybe you um, are reading a headline about a good Samaritan and you could say, hey, you know what? Um, that actually, that story has an origin. Can I tell you the origin story of the Good Samaritan? And then you're going to tell them the story that you know about what it means uh, to show mercy to neighbor, those kinds of things. All right, we're going to do a little bit more of that at the top of the next hour. You are listening to Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.